0: Now hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 3. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Clory's I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready yet. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you this morning on this beautiful day. Amazing weather, right? Right? It's just absolutely gorgeous. I love this time of year. Fall is my absolute favorite time of year. It's the best of all the seasons. You get cooler weather, leaves changing colors, college and pro football. Epic. Pretty awesome. Now, how many of you guys, should show of hands, how many of you guys follows your favorite time of year? Okay. How many of you guys summer? How many of you guys winter? All right, how many of you guys spring? Oh, that's a good, good variety. Danny over there champions summer. I don't know if he does or not, I'm just gonna say that. As. Danny champions summer. Eric loves winter. Which one of us is right? Who do you follow? Maybe you say, Eric is the one who shared the gospel with me, so i will go to follow Eric, so go winter. (laughs) Maybe you say, Danny baptized me, so I will follow him, so go summer. Now we have division in the church. Oh, man, what have I done? This is not good. See, I know this is silly, right? It's just silly illustration. I actually have no idea who who Eric champions or Danny champions or anybody else. I don't know what they really like the most. But something similar to this was happening in the life of the church of Corinth. It probably wasn't over their favorite season of the year, like what I just said, but division and factionalism was happening. In the early part of chapter three, Paul says they're acting in the flesh full of jealousy and strife. Now, I'm going to throw this out there as a complete side note. I have to throw this out there real quick. I just have to. I can't help myself. I've often heard people over and over again say, we need to be like the church in the New Testament or like the church in Acts. And when they say that, I often throw out, just because I'm contrary and I like to do this to people. I'm like, So which church is that? They're like, the church in Acts, the church in New Testament. I'm like, well, there's a lot of churches in Acts and a lot of churches in the New Testament. There's church in Jerusalem, church in Corinth, church in Ephesus, church in Antioch. They were all different. But i also like to throw this out there, too, just because I'm a mean person. I thought that, you know, a lot of Paul's letters are written because the churches are kind of dysfunctional. So you want us to be a dysfunctional church? Like, no. And then on top of that, in the book of Revelations, um, out of the seven churches that the letters were written out to, five of them were messed up and uh, rebuked. So I was like, so I'm confused. Do we want to be rebuked? I don't know what you want. Okay, I say all that. I'm sorry. I'm just a mean person. I know what they're trying to say. But we're not supposed to be like those churches in Acts. We're not supposed to be like the churches in the New Testament. We're supposed to be like the church God calls us to be now and this day led by his spirit to accomplish the work that he's called us to do. Does that make sense? You guys with me on that real quick? That was a quick little aside that I just had to throw out there, but that's exactly what we are. See, guys, we're not called to live in the past. We're not called to say this is the glory days. I've often heard that said about America. I miss the glory days of America. I've also heard that said about different situations. Different. I miss the glory days of this. I miss the glory days of that. Can I tell you guys something? This is so profoundly what I believe to be so true for us, especially in the church. I miss the glory days of Christendom. I wish we can go back to that. I'm like, can I tell you, God has called you and the church right now where it's at for a purpose. And our duty is to be faithful to the call that he's called and placed upon us as a church. And so all we can do is say, God, what do you want us to do in this place, in this culture, in this context? Okay, going back into your series. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for a few weeks now, and we're gonna be in here for a few more weeks. And this is a letter written to the church in Corinth by Paul. He's addressing the main issues that they have, but he does it by constantly going back to the gospel. In Corinth, the two leaders have become kind of a flashpoint of pride and division, are Paul and Apollos. First Corinthians 1, 11 and 12 says this, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So the church is lining up behind their favorite teachers, kind of boasting in them, and there's quarrels and there's divisions happening. The entire first four chapters of this letter is dealing with this problem. They're quarreling, there's division, there's fighting, there's jealousy, there's strife. They're like, oh, Paul, uh, what he says is better, or what Paul says is better, or I'm more important because Paul baptized me, or Apollos set me up. Now you might say, well, why Paul and Apollos? It seems like there's Cephas and there's Christ. Well, 1 Corinthians 3, 4, it says, when I, follow, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos. Verses 5 and 6, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, when Paul is summing up the three chapters, he says, I have applied all these things to myself, and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So yes, Cephas in Christ was mentioned, but really it came down to those two main figures in the church, Here's Paul and here's Apollos. The sad thing is, they never fought with each other. They didn't disagree with each other. It's said the people who followed them after they left were like, well, you know, Paul wouldn't do it that way. Paul would do it this way. Or Apollos wouldn't do it that way, he would do it this way. But it's actually not actually Paul or Apollos who would say these things. It's people's interpretation of what they would do. So that's the issue. Paul and Paul have become the, this idea of kind of people being puffed up in favor of one against the other over these two leaders. And then Paul addresses in our text, what can we learn about God and about human leadership? And how does Paul teach us about God and human leadership that will hopefully result in humility and boasting in the Lord Jesus? Last week, I spoke about how Paul didn't come with eloquence and an expected manner of the world. He didn't come as a grand order. He didn't come in with robes flowing, with all the degrees and the pedigrees. He didn't come in as a philosopher. He didn't come in with signs the way the Jews wanted, or with wisdom the way the Greeks expected. He came only with the simple message that turned the world upside down. He came with the message of the cross, he came with the gospel. Paul realized that he had true power. The only true power that could turn dead to life is not words, is not wisdom, not intellect, but was the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That only God has the power to bring the gospel to transform lives. For us, Paul describes us as dead in our transgressions and sin. So for us, or for anyone, to obey God is a miracle and takes power of resurrection, power which God alone has. Therefore, Paul is saying it's... Or he's going to say, it's, not, it's wrong to put too much stock into our leaders or their abilities. The Corinthians idolize their leaders and were fiercely loyal to them. This is an unhealthy attitude towards leadership. And it comes from misunderstanding of the gospel. So in this passage, guys, what I want you to see is I want you to see your attitude toward Christian leaders, what it should be. And let me give you a few reasons why this is important. One, all of you, in one sense or another as a leader of others in that you are trying to influence people for Christ. So it's important to have a right view of what Christian leadership is because all of you are called to be a leader in one sense or another. And two, guys, can I tell you how many times I've heard from people who have been destroyed, wrecked, uh, turned away from faith, moved away from the body of believers because some leader disappointed them. Some pastor hurt them. Somebody who they really looked up to as a leader of the faith let them down. I can't tell you something. It is so vitally important that you have the right view of the leaders in your church and the leaders in your life. Because one, you're a leader, and two, because the wrong view of these leaders leads to destroying your heart and your faith. You hear me? Chapter three, verses one through four. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So, I, guys, I love how Paul starts off chapter three, he basically calls his people babies. He's like, guys, quit being babies. Seriously, you're acting like children. What's wrong with you? I love Paul. He's bold, man. He just says it. He calls it like it is. He's like my wife, you know? My wife is like, I'm just going to speak the truth, and I'm just going to let you know that this is, this is what she does. She always tells the truth, even if it hurts. And there are times when I'm like, ow. And she's like, it's the truth, Lawrence. I'm like, you have to say it. Paul says it. Paul speaks the truth, and he says, guys, what you're doing is you're living like babies. I love this phrase here that he uses. He says, you're living merely human. I love that phrase. What does that mean, to live merely human? In other words, he's saying, guys, you're acting and you're living life as if your people have never heard the gospel. You're living life as if you never had received grace. You're living like a normal human instead of people who've received the gospel of the goodness of the the gospel of Christ in your life. You're a baby. And this jealousy, this strife, this infighting, this division is making you not grow. Making you live a life that's contrary to the life that you're called to live. He goes into this farm analogy, a little agricultural analogy here. He says, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Guys, you're the field and God's word is the seed. And The seed is life. It's the growth that happens. Leaders, guys, they're the, only ones, they're the ones who help plant the seed. They're the ones who help till the soil. They're the ones who kind of help water the ground. But you can do all of that. If God doesn't make a seed grow, then nothing will happen. The seed, the seed, the seed is the power. The seed in itself has the, has the power to change you. The gospel message in and of itself is the power to change you. Not the one planting, not the one watering, not the one raking or digging or, I'm, as you know, I'm really good with agriculture. <laughs> You're being childish when you don't see that your growth has nothing to do with man. Well, So you can say then, well, Lawrence, if God is the only one that can do it, why do you preach? I mean, I mean, why are you even sharing the word? If God's the only one that's gonna grow everything, why, why even water? Why even do all this stuff? First Corinthians one twenty one says, it's pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save them that believe, God's preaching and teaching and studying the word. It's like the wire that connects us to the resurrecting power of God. And when you're tied to a man, that shows you you don't really understand the gospel. If you're tied to a leader as your means of growth, make no mistake, the power of change comes only from God. It's in his word, not men. It means that you don't understand that what grows you is the power of the seed, power of the gospel in you. I want you to hear this very well. Leaders are nothing more than Servants. They're table servers. The actual language here is is one that means to serve your table, right? And one that says they bring the food of the gospel to you. But they're not the ones who cooked it. They're not the ones who made the food. They bring out the ready-made food that the cook made. Do you hear that? Guys, what leaders are are not ones who are feeding you. They just bring out the food to you. They say, hey, enjoy. They're saying, look how good this meal is. The chef labored for this. The chef made the best ingredients and he cut and he cooked and he prepped and it's the best food in the world. And the chef, he just brings it out to you and says, eat and enjoy. He doesn't take a spoon, doesn't shovel it down your throat. Guys, here's what a leader is called to do it's just called to be a servant who brings the food to others. Do you hear that? Let me break this down in another way. Let me show you what unhealthy attitude toward leadership looks like. And these are signs that you don't understand the gospel. One, we think we're lost without certain leaders. As if they're the ones who started this process or gave us life. Guys, hear this already, okay? If you lose a leader and you think you're lost without the leader, then you don't know the leader, the true shepherd of your life because here's the deal guys every one of you guys as you know Jesus you have a shepherd his name is Jesus and for a while God may use certain leaders as instruments in your life but when that person's gone the shepherd remains do you hear that? two we attribute to certain leaders perfection almost an attain- unattainability untouchability almost a godlike status you know maybe that's how you see Billy Graham or John Piper or Tim Keller right I said Tim Keller do I'm looking at you watch out they're not perfect and they did not die for your sins. Amen. Do you hear me? Jesus is the perfect one. He is the one who died for your sins. We often identify ourselves primarily by your leader's name, right? I grew up in a PCA church and I went to uh, which is a Presbyterian church and the, the name of John Calvin was sacred. You know, if, you, if you're a Calvinist, that's who you were. Not a Christian. You were a Calvinist. You know. And so, if you're identifying by the name of that leader, can I tell you that you probably have a wrong view of that leader? Now, one day, I'm just going to throw this out. If any one of you guys would to be called a Laurentian, I'm okay with it. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That would be kind of cool, though. <laughs> I'm a Laurentian. <laughs> sweet? <laughs> Not sweet. Don't say that. <laughs> We seek their understanding of a topic and value it over a personal study of the word. Do you hear that? I'm gonna say that again. An unhealthy sign that you view somebody as an unhealthy way of viewing leadership is we seek their understanding of a topic and value it over a personal study of the word. Hear me well when I say this, guys. We need teachers, we need commentators. We need them in our lives. Don't get me wrong. But we need to be seeking that out in the Bible. We need to be asking the Holy Spirit to reveal it to ourselves. Can I tell you this? I say this often here. But I wanna say this again, I preach, and if I preach something wrong to you out of the text, if I preach something that's contrary to the message of God, if I preach something that's wrong against the Bible, that is absolutely on me, and God and I will have a talk about that, God's gonna judge me for that. But can I tell you something, if you believe it without texting it against the word, that's on you. Everything I say, everything that I speak out here, please do not take that as gospel truth. Everything I speak, you need to be saying, oh, is that true to the word? You need to test everything I say, everything your leaders say. You need to say, is that true to the word? So if I get up here and I say, well, you know, the Bible says in 2nd um, or 5th Corinthians chapter 7 that uh, thou is supposed to giveth all the, you know, Snickers bars you have, to Lawrence. <laughs> you need to be like, hmm, wait a minute. <laughs> Do you hear me? I make, I make light of that. But guys, there has been so many twistings of scripture There have been so much teachings that have been false that if you just dive into the word and ask the spirit to enlighten you, don't just trust the words of a leader. Do you hear me? Because if we did, there are so many eloquent, so many inspirational speakers out there. There are so many people who are a million times more eloquent, a bazillion times more uh, passionate, a billion times better at speaking than I'll ever be, who's gonna come in and teach you something false and you'll just listen and believe it please, even everything that I say, everything your leaders say, you need to take it against Scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten you and say, is this the Word of God? See, another sign of unhealthy view of leadership is that we seek their understanding over a topic of Scripture before you dive into your own. Paul goes on to an architectural analogy to reiterate his point. The Washington Monument, I don't know if you guys know this, this is some cool little tidbit of history for you guys. When it was first being built, almost ended in a complete disaster, All right? All the reason I know this, because I remember in, uh, never mind, I don't know why I'm gonna tell you this, but in, the, in Hamilton at the very end, they talk about, yeah. It's very good. Enjoy the soundtrack of Hamilton, it's very good, okay. But it ended in disaster. It was supposed to be, at the time, at least the tallest stone obelisk in the world. That was the goal. It was going to be the tallest stone obelisk in the world, 600 feet tall. It was supposed to have a flat top with a statue of Washington riding a horse. As, like a like horse like lifted up, you know, like that picture. That would be the cool statue. I'm just saying. If you guys ever want to make a statue of me, me with a horse, no, a unicorn riding a dragon. Okay. So be, it would be a good statue. 600 feet tall, washing on top, riding a horse, kind of rearing up. But the shaft rested on a foundation of about 80 square feet, exerting 10,000 pounds per square inch of pressure on a bed of clay and sand. Not the best foundation. So, of course, right away, the monument began to lean. Actually, it began to lean almost two inches off vertical, and cracks began to appear. And for 20 years, the project seriously just lay unfinished, undone, neglected. Everyone thought the thing was doomed to failure because what can we do? We can't go any higher. This, this idea, the this structure doesn't work. It wasn't until a colonel in the core of engineering managed to resolve the problem and completed the work with a simple pyramid at the pinnacle so that what well, we have the monument as we have it now. He changed the foundation, changed the building, and he made it work now. But for 20 years there, the great monument to America's founding father was unfinished, cracked, and listing, a leaning tower that looked like it was about to fall over at any moment because it was built on the wrong foundation. As you probably hope, hopefully gathered by now, foundation is really important to building a building that lasts. Verse 10 says, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. He's not boasting, he's not saying, ha, I'm a skilled master builder here. Pretty awesome. The word is technically a term for a project manager, an architect, a principal leader on a building site. So he's saying, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Guys, back then, if you wanted to build a massive building, a cathedral, a monument, a church, it would—it wouldn't. Doesn't happen in like a year, right? It's not like around here. You're like, oh, you away for a year, and all of a sudden, oh, where did that building come from? Right? They didn't have cranes, they didn't have excavators, they didn't have all these equipment that we have nowadays. So for them, a building like this could take generations. For them, a building like this would take maybe four generations, maybe hundreds of years of people spending their lives giving. And what Paul is saying is I laid a foundation, someone else is building upon it. Let's take care of each how we build upon this foundation. But the foundation, the only foundation that will work is being founded on Jesus Christ. You can't lay any other. If you try it, your Christian life will begin to lean off-center. Cracks will start to appear. Your building will not last. It's not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most foundational, fundamental truths I want you to hear today. This is the beginning of the Christian life. Get this wrong. If you get the gospel wrong, if you get who Jesus Christ is wrong, then your whole Christian life is wrong. It's off. It's off-kilter. It's all about Jesus first as your foundation, the only secure foundation. What are, what are you building your life on? What's your foundation? Some of us perhaps are building our lives on moral foundations. We have a strong work ethic, we're good people. We strive to tr- treat others the way we wanna be treated. We pride ourselves on our good, our motives are. We feel assured that if God, if there is a God, he would certainly kinda look at us in a high regard because our character is good. Others of us us have built our foundation on trying to win the approval of men around us. First mom and dad, then your peer group, then your friends, maybe your work, your career, your success. And there's others who live in a make-believe world of their own invention. We've trained ourselves to bury our heads in the sand, avoid facing reality, taking responsibility. We run and hide, we duck and cover. We drown out our stress and our cares in the world with entertainment, spending, being a consumer, but Paul is telling us very clearly here that whatever we built our lives on, whatever we built our foundation on, if it's not Jesus, cracks will appear eventually. Isn't that so, so true? For those of you who are here today and you built your life on how good you are, and you really stop and think, how good am I? For those of you who built your life on, hey, I always win the approval of my parents and of my friends. What do you do when you don't? What do you do when you let even yourself down or your kids down or your friends down? For those of you who try to live in a make-believe world of self-medication through enjoyment and uh, hedonism, what do you do when that stuff fades away and you're left to the point where I don't have enough medication anymore of this hedonistic world and I need something else that's lacking? You start seeing that there's cracks in your building. Guys, I can say with everything in my heart, the only Jesus can take the weight of the foundation of your life. Unmoving, solid, secure. It's the only place where we heart can go. And then I love this song because on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Until we come there, until we find our lives kind of in the place of Jesus at our foundation, cracks will always come. Why will cracks always come? Because here's the deal. God knows us in the way he made us. And all of us are yearning. We're yearning for that esteem. We're yearning for that purposeful living. We're yearning to be known, like I said, to be loved and to have purpose. And the problem is, as this yearning exists in us, we try to find fulfillment, our foundation, on all these things we hope would fulfill that yearning. But the reality of this world is that all these things that we try to find our hope in, because we were made for one thing only, it doesn't sustain, it doesn't work, and it leaves cracks in us. Because we were made to be known, because we were made to be loved, we were made to be, to call to purpose. Guys, that everything else we try to find fulfillment in, it doesn't satisfy. As C.S. Lewis says, because the logical conclusion, if nothing on this earth satisfies us, the logical conclusion is that we were not made for this earth. You are made for relationship with an all-knowing, all-loving God. Are you resting on Him today? Is Jesus your foundation or is it your own abilities? Can I tell you guys, if you're sitting here today, if it's your own abilities to be good, aren't you exhausted? Aren't you tired of not being sure if you're good enough? Can I tell you today that if you're resting on your own skill and what you've accomplished in this world, aren't you tired of running around in that hamster wheel? If you're here today and if you're resting on this kind of like fake world of entertainment and this escapism, wow, aren't you tired of trying to find ways to make it all work out and seem like it's okay? Will you find rest in the foundation of the gospel? that you're still, that you can be known, you can be loved because Jesus Christ took upon himself the penalty of the, of the sins of the world so that you can have a loving relationship with a God you were made for. That this longing to be home exists because you have a home waiting for you. Be careful that you're building on the right foundation. Paul first asked, what are you building on? Then he asked second, what are you building with? Notice how in verse 12 he lists different construction materials, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, shawl, which by the way, I was a little confused by this, because would you really build a home out of gold? I, I mean, it just seems weird. Like, Could you imagine an all-gold building, or an all-silver building? Is that not, does that happen? I don't even know, I'm just okay. at it. Just throwing that out there. Seems kind of odd. But he lists it in decreasing value and increasing flammability, right? I mean, didn't you see, like, decreasing value, like, gold, silver, stones, wood, hay, straw. It almost went, like, decreasing value and decreasing, like, ability to burn up in fire. You know, like, hay, yeah, that's burned up in fire, pretty strong, yeah, that's wood, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Make sure you build so that it lasts. Now, why is that important? As long as your life is resting on Christ as a sure foundation, does it really matter that all that you build, how, how you build it? Look at verse 13, each one's work will become manifest. Paul says, for the day he means the return of Jesus, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. So at the final judgment, our lives will fall under the scrutiny. Hear this. We'll fall under the scrutiny of the Lord himself. All of our work for Jesus will be put to the test. and The criteria is not how much we did. It's not the busyness, it's not, but it's the quality. Let each one take how, care how he builds. Verse 10, verse 13, the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Not how much, but, the, but not the volume, but what sort of work. Now hear this very well, guys. You might be saying, what does that mean? You might say, well, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not building with gold because I'm not, compared to Joy or compared to Susie down the street or compared to this other person, I'm not doing the work of God. You might be saying, I'm not that important, I'm not that famous, I'm not a preacher, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not all this other person. Can I I tell you something? What what you're building, all this time that you've been building and the things that you don't think that you're building with, guys, can I tell you that this is is a profound truth I don't want you to miss, okay? Here's you know that sometimes in life, there are things that seem to receive a lot of glory, right? If you look at this world, the things that you do—if you—if you can score 50 points in the NBA basketball game, you're going to be considered. There's a lot of glory for you, right? If you can play guitar and sing really well, there's glory for you to be had. Does that make sense? There's certain positions, there's certain things that action, that you can do that in this world provides glory. Guys, can I tell you this right now? That if I can gather an audience of 20,000 people in a church, there's a lot of glory. If I can write a book that sells multi millions of books, there's a lot of glory in it for me. Am I right? Do you think God cares? Just to be honest, do you think, oh, Lawrence, impressive. (laughs) Wow. wow." 20,000 people came to your church? Okay, all right, Lawrence. No. He can care less. I mean, seriously, like, this is what I want you guys to understand. This is what I love. He mixes leadership with wisdom here. Right, because he's not saying it's the wisdom of the world. That's not what God values. When you think of building with gold, when you think of this glory that the world values, can't tell you what glory is. Glory could be you staying up, spending weeks taking care of your sick mother. Glory is you taking care of your children. Glory is you going faithfully to work to a job that you don't like, that you hate, but you do it faithfully and you do it with excellence because it gives him Glory. Glory and building well is entering into your word, spending time in prayer, praying for that friend who doesn't know Jesus, praying faithfully for that person for 30 years. Glory is being willing to share the gospel at your work, down your street, because you don't care whether or not people make fun of you or you can be ashamed. Do you hear me very well? Please do not make a mistake of what we think God glorifies in, right? Right? And now, please hear me. I'm not saying God doesn't like Tim Keller or these other awesome preachers or these author, authors. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is God has uniquely called different people to different things. And the thumb doesn't get more glory than the big toe, than the nose, than the eye, than the. You guys see what I'm saying? You got that illustration there? Guys, God might be calling you. All He's calling you to do is the way you build, you build intentionally, you build purposefully. You build with quality what God has called you to build. It's the why of how you build. We ourselves, I love this, verse 15 has this really weird image of We'll be saved, but there's this fire coming, and there's this house fire. You're asleep in the home that you've built with your own hands, but you cut corners, they're, they're the construction process, you, you ignored the building code, your electrical wiring is dangerous, you, you, didn't do it, you didn't do it well, you used bad materials. So this fire comes, and this, the whole house goes down, everything is lost but you. And that's the picture that you have in this passage here. Everything lost is, it's, it's, but you, it, it, it's a warning. A child of God will not be lost. In other words, your foundation's on Christ, you're, gonna, you're good, you're not dying in this fire. But everything you built up is, so be careful how you build. He's saying, build so as you make your vessel deep and wide, filled with much glory of Christ, uh, build with gold and silver and precious stones, build for eternity, build in humility, build selflessly, build joyfully, build in faith, resting on the foundation that, that is Jesus Christ. Build for his honor, his praise. Uh, one of the greatest Christian names of all time, Christian missionary name, is a guy named C.T. Studd. Right? He's a stud. He one of the seven young students at Cambridge University who offered themselves to Hudson Taylor to go to the interior of China in the early days of China Inland Mission. Stud is most famous for his saying, um, this is sort of a life mission, and this is what he said. Some want to live within the sound of the church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's how he understands the mission of the church. It's rescue shop within a yard of hell. And this, this, this idea, the way C.T. Studd, this awesome stud, the way he lived his life, was he said, that for me, what glory, what building this house means is building it in such a way that I want to live here. So his house built was the how, where he lived. But he also had this quote. And now, I actually read that C.T., in the same book that I read, that C.T. Studd said this quote. I actually thought Jim Elliot said this quote. Or somebody like Jamelian, I don't remember. But it, it, this quote was attributed to him. This is a poem that C.T. Studd wrote. He's only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, I feel like I heard somebody else say that quote, but this, they give him credit. Uh, he's no fool who gives. Okay, that's the one Jamelian says. Thank you. And that's Paul's point here, isn't it? He's saying build to last. He's saying, well, this life will soon pass. So, what, what, what you build, what you do for Christ, that building that you build for Christ, that's what's going to last. How much of your labors are you spending for yourself, for your own pleasures, for your own distractions? Are you building the last? Are you building for the sake of eternity? Be sure to build on the correct foundation first. Be careful how you build. And then finally, be be aware of what destroys a building. All right, so three things right there when it comes to architecture. The foundation, how you build, and be aware of what destroys a building. Verses 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you... Verses 16 and 17 said, do you not know the you, the yous are a plural by the way, he said about the church collectively, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So now the building apparently we see at last is the temple of God, holy to the Lord, that's the church. He dwells here, he delights in this place, this is his dwelling place, God delights and dwells in his people, his, his church. And Paul still so thinking about the problem of division. And he's saying, in effect, if you Corinthians insist on these worldly, divisive patterns of behavior, in the end, they all demonstrate that you are not building on the foundation at all. You're not really a child of God. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty-five, By this shall the world know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Love for one another is an evidence that you are a follower of Christ, that you are building on the foundation. So then vice, the opposite is true on the same token. If you are giving yourself in the pursuit of division, in the pursuit of factions, then you are destroying the church of Christ. And you are sure you're not built on the foundation of Jesus. Here's what I mean by this, guys. Here's what I want you to hear this. Here's what destroys a building. Division. Here's what destroys a building. He's saying your jealousies, your strifes, your divisions, you following Apollos, you following Cephas, you following Paul, can I tell you guys, that's what's destroyed. You build, if you build it on the another foundation, you build it how? But don't let these roots of division come into your church. Come into who you are. It reveals your heart. And if you're the one destroying the church, you'll face destruction. It's a sobering warning for you. It's saying, guys, as you build this up, do not lead to division. Guys, can I tell you this? Um, this is always a side note. I got to throw this out there. That's something that people always question. Is that people are like, well, Lawrence, isn't there divisions in the church anyway because of all the denominations and the differences and all that kind of stuff? You guys, ever, do you, you guys think that at all, anybody? Is that bad? You're like, oh, denominations are bad then. I mean, we should all be one denomination. I'm like, no, guys, can I tell you something very clear? Hear me very well when I say this. This is meant for the local church. Do you hear me? This is meant for the local church body. I think God in his beautiful uh, plan and his sovereignty said, you know what, I ain't gonna allow for different uh, denominations, different parts of my body to act in different ways, even though we're one unified Catholic church, one universal church. That we allow for differences amongst it, but what he's talking about is divisions and differences amongst your local body. Does that make sense? You guys with me? And here's what I love about this, because here's what happened. If you look at the history of America, even, you see how the God used the differences of denominations to radically affect the way even America was reached with the gospel, right? In the early parts of America, we used kind of like the Puritans and the, a lot of the kind of reformed Presbyterian type thinkers, and they, they thought, oh, let's be a high academics, and they established a lot of the seminaries. Right, so there was a lot of research a lot of academic biblical study but then a lot of the kind of more of the Mennonite Baptist tradition were like we just gotta get the gospel out there and follow the great awakening and so they just went and shared the gospel like crazy and they went to tent revivals went all across to the frontiers of America went everywhere guys the beautiful thing is we have both now in our history so we have the enthusiasm and the sharing of the gospel that we've seen in that but we also have apart from we also have the beautiful academic research and the study do you hear me? That's just one illustration of what I'm talking about. But what I'm not talking about, what Paul's not talking about, is divisions inside the church that leads to separation and leads to strife. At Waypoint Church, our elders operate on a a model that we have to be unanimous in every one of our decision-making. So if there's a decision placed upon the elders, there's no like, okay, everybody, let's vote, and oh, it's five to four, it, it passes. It has to be unanimous. Because we do it because we don't want one person to be like, "Well, I didn't vote for that." Blame Danny. You know. We wanted to be one. Guys, can I tell you something? And hear me very well. One of the saddest truths I've heard in my heart growing up is I went. I was in a little Korean church most of my life, and I was in a town called Panama City, Florida, which is a small town to begin with. I only had like the the Korean church only had like thirty-five people. Can I tell you that church split four times? I'm like, are you serious? You have like 35 people you split four times. How could that be? And it wrecked me. I hated it. I was like, why are you always fighting? Why are you always splitting? Guys, this is a true story, true story. I was at a church in Sanford, Florida. And I kid you not, one of the arguments we had in one of our committee meetings for like two and a half hours, two and a half hours, was the color of the carpet. Dead serious. I mean, I know that's one of the jokes you use, you know, the pastors use. It actually happened. I couldn't believe it. I literally was sitting there like... (sighs) Guys, we always talk about how we believe here at Waypoint Church, we exist for two main reasons. One, we want to be the coming attraction. We want to be the preview. We want to be the trailer of the kingdom of God. And can I tell you, when I saw the choir leading us in worship, when I heard the voices singing, I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we are. But what we, when we fight, when we have strife, when we're not unified, we are not the coming attraction. Do you hear me very well? Now, guys, please, doesn't mean we always have to agree. Believe me, me and my wife don't always agree. But what we do is we say, whatever, time, whatever comes when we don't agree, we still operate in grace with each other. There are times that you're going to disagree radically with something that the leadership does in the church. And as long as it's not, like, as long as it's still biblical, you guys just be like, "Okay, that's the decision made. I will be in unified unity with that." There can be times where you disagree with your small group leader. When you think, "Oh, we should be doing this Bible verse, or we should be looking at this passage, or we should be doing this outreach event," disagreements are not what's wrong. It's division. It's to quarrels, it's to strife, it's to jealousy. And God can I tell you that when we have the right view of leadership, when our building is built on the foundation of the gospel, the gospel that says that we're all sinners and we all need to give each other grace, that we all fall short of the glory of God and we all need the spirit of God in us to breathe life into us. And that there's no leader that is better. All leaders are, you yourself and me and anybody else, all leaders are, are servers who bring forth the food of the gospel to each other. It changes the way we build. Amen? Amen. So may we as a church have the right view of the building and the foundation so we can grow and build correctly, so we can show people the beautiful temple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that... Our reality, our foundation, what we can build and rest our lives upon is the fact that we are a sinner, but we've been adopted and brought into a loving relationship, that we are now co-heirs alongside Christ because of the work of Jesus. God, our foundation is that we didn't have to earn anything, so we're not going to lose salvation. We didn't have to work hard, be better. We didn't have to make more money, look a certain way. But out of just your pure love and grace, you've chosen us and you've called us into relationship. So we thank you that we, on that foundation we stand. On that foundation we build our lives. God, show us how to build correctly. God, show us how to, show us how to be a church, God, that that ministers well in your name, built on the foundation of Jesus, built on the foundation of the gospel, built with right quality materials, not, without, not with strife, but seeking to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.